Niccolo Paganini was born in Genoa, 1782. His father was an unsuccessful trader, but he managed to supplement his income through playing music on the mandolin. At the age of five, Paganini started learning the mandolin from his father, and moved to the violin by the age of seven. His musical talents were quickly recognised, earning him numerous scholarships for violin lessons. The young Paganini studied under various local violinists, including Giovanni Savetto and Giacomo Costa, but his progress quickly outpaced their abilities. Paganini and his father then travelled to Parma to seek out further guidance from Alessandro Rolla, but upon listening to Paganini's playing, Rolla immediately referred him to his own teacher, Ferdinando Peo, and later, Peo's own teacher, Gasparo Garetti. Though Paganini did not stay long with Peo or Garetti, the two had considerable influence on his composition style. In 1801, the 18-year-old Paganini was appointed first violin of the Republic of Lucca, but a substantial portion of his income came from freelancing. His fame as a violinist was matched only by his reputation as a gambler and womanizer. Referred to as the Demon Violinist, Paganini could play his first violin concerto with a swiftness that amazed even his fellow violinists. His numerous compositions are to be played with extraordinary rapidity, and a lot of this was benefited by the flexibility and reach of his hands. Undoubtedly, the musician's virtuosity was possible in part because of his remarkably flexible joints, which may have resulted from a hereditary disease of the connective tissue, either Ehlers-Danlos or Marfan syndrome. Throughout his life, Paganini was no stranger to chronic illness. In addition, his frequent concert schedule, as well as his extravagant lifestyle, took their toll on his health. In September 1834, Paganini put an end to his concert career and returned to Genoa. During this retirement, Paganini devoted his time to the publication of his compositions and violin methods. He accepted students, of whom two enjoyed moderate success. In 1838, Paganini's health started to seriously decline, and on the 27th of May 1840, Paganini died from internal hemorrhaging before a priest could be summoned. Because of this, and his widely rumoured association with the devil, the church denied his body a Catholic burial in Genoa. Paganini died as the most celebrated violin virtuoso of his time, and left his mark as one of the pillars of modern violin technique. So that one's an interesting story, isn't it? It took a turn from, wow, violin prodigy to demon violinist. So the reason that he got that nickname was because of how fast and how skilled he was, and probably to some extent because he looked a bit different and he had this incredible range to his reach when playing. Because of very long fingers? Yes, he had long fingers and incredibly flexible joints. I suppose we should probably introduce the podcast. Yes. So, welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host, Anthony. 
And I'm Juliet. So, it's 50-50 here. What condition do you think we're covering? Oh, oh, you said two names there. You said Eller Daniel. Ellers Danlos. Yeah, that. Or EDS. Um, and Mar- Marfan Syndrome. Yes. So we're covering Marfan Syndrome today. What is that? Marfan Syndrome is an inherited disorder that affects the connective tissue. So those are the fibres that support and anchor your organs and other structures in your body. And Marfan syndrome most commonly affects the heart, eyes, blood vessels, and the skeleton. So by connective tissue, does that mean, like, tendons? It means tendons. It means uh, it means the bone, actually. There's the hold the bone together. The blood vessels. Your bone needs to be held together? Yeah, you have these fibres. So your your bone is this weird kind of composite material where you've got, like, the elastic fibres of the bone, which allow it to have some flexibility. And then you have the uh, calcium, uh, calcium-based structure as well. So it's kind of, it's kind Bones of like are flexible. They have some flex to them. Otherwise, they would snap very easily. Well, I'm already shocked by this episode. Cool, we can go now. And that's the end of the episode. But yeah. So anyway, so the typical symptoms you get as a result of this uh, disorder in the connective tissues is that people are often of this uh, tall and slender build. This is probably, to some extent, because the joints are not held together so closely. People with Marfan syndrome typically have disproportionately long arms, legs, and fingers, which probably benefited Paganini in his playing. You can end up with a condition where your breastbone either protrudes outwards from the chest, or it can actually dip inwards, so your ribs can look concave. I am tall and have long fingers. You had to work on your flexibility, though. Yeah, and I guess I don't have a concave chest. Yeah, and I mean, to some degree, I have some hypermobility in the sense that my arm, the elbow joint, actually bends a little further than it should do, but it's not to the extent that you would see in Marfan syndrome, where someone could just dislocate a joint if enough damage has been done to the connective tissue in that area. Ah, okay. So, just because I'm tall, I don't need to panic. No, not at all. And just because you're flexible or have some hypermobility doesn't mean that you need to panic either. Other symptoms that you will find, though, and this can help kind of you know distinguish it, is uh, you can have this high arched palate. So that's the uh, the top of your mouth. So rather than it being kind of relatively flat with a bit of a curve, like if you kind of run your tongue in your mouth right now, you'll feel. It will be a lot higher. And possibly because of that shaping, you end up with quite crowded teeth. Uh, other symptoms include extreme nearsightedness, scoliosis, flat feet because the uh, connective tissue are not able to hold the arch up, and heart murmurs. And looking at that, I'm realizing I also have flat feet, but I am certain that I don't have Marfan syndrome. Okay, can we go back over a few of those? Of Why? Course. Why would the chest be, did you say concave or convex? Yes. So the reason would be when you're growing, the connective tissue is not developing properly, so it's not holding the uh, breastbone in place properly. So depending on other circumstances with how you grow or other things that happen, it will either start kind of pushing itself outwards or from not being held in place properly, it'll start sinking inwards. Okay, and that's how scoliosis in the spine can also happen, by not having enough structural support. 
Yes. Okay. And then you said you can have nearsightedness. Yeah. So part of the reason for that is that uh, connective tissue obviously is part of what attaches the muscles to different parts of the body. So if the muscles aren't attaching properly, you're not going to be able to, for example, adjust the uh, lens in your eyes properly, which means that it's going to be a lot harder for you to adjust your vision. And because you can't uh, maintain the right level of tension, you end up being short-sighted. Huh. I never think about my eye muscles. Yeah, because within the eye, you have the lens that's held by these muscles, which will either squeeze them or pull them to make them fatter or thinner. And that's how you adjust your sight. Huh. So when you're focusing on something a little further away, that's what your eyes are doing. Wow. So I have a bendy skeleton and tense eyes. That's what I'm taking from this. Yeah, let's just go with that. <laughs> so how can you actually get diagnosed with Marfan syndrome instead of just staring at the length of your arms and panicking? Well, unfortunately, this can actually be pretty difficult. So Marfan syndrome is often difficult to diagnose because the signs and symptoms can vary from person to person, but they can also be similar to other conditions like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. So in most cases, diagnosis will be based on thorough physical examination and a detailed assessment of a person's medical and family history. Obviously, what that means is that it could take years, potentially, for you to get diagnosed, and that children are rarely diagnosed with the condition because of the amount of time it takes to determine accurately that someone has the condition. Why would you be going into the doctor if you were growing up with Marfan syndrome? Uh, dislocations, eyesight problems, uh, growth development's not proper, scoliosis is obviously a big problem, especially at a young age. So, so all these things, you go to the doctor with other complaints, and then after a while, the doctor might go, let's look into this, because these previous issues were not it. What happens if, like, your shoulder just keeps dislocating on you? It seems like it would really hurt. It'd be very, very painful. You'd, like, if you dislocate a joint, it hurts a lot. Um, and so having this kind of these joints that click out quite easily can cause a lot of chronic pain. Oh, so so it going undiagnosed and therefore untreated can really, really affect somebody's life. Yes, it's not just physical. It, it's not just changes in how you look. Yeah. And for that reason, there's a there is a standardized way of diagnosing someone with Marfan syndrome based off of symptoms and family history. So you use this um, system called the Ghent criteria. And what it's used to do is to distinguish Marfan syndrome from other similar conditions so that you don't get misdiagnosed with a different uh, connective tissue disorder. Okay. What are the criteria? So if you have a family history, you need to tick one major criteria and one minor criteria. And if you don't have a family history, you need to tick two major criteria and one minor criteria. The major criteria are an enlarged aorta. So something like an ultrasound is needed. The aorta is the main artery that comes out of the heart when the large left ventricle pumps. It pumps blood through the aorta to the rest of the body. Okay, so big heart tube. Yeah. A tear in the aorta is another major criteria that that seems pretty major yeah uh this one might make you cringe lens dislocation Ugh. so the lens in your eye 
can get dislocated, which I didn't even know could happen. I mean, I've knocked my eye when putting in contacts before and thought I might have done that, but I didn't need the confirmation. I knew you could detach a retina, I didn't know you could dislocate a lens. Other major criteria include having at least four skeletal problems. So it could be loads of dislocations in your shoulder, uh, lots of hypermobility in another area, or just different places that are having repeated dislocations, for example. And the other major criteria is enlargement of a particular lining that surrounds part of the spinal cord. So not the spine, the bones themselves, but the actual cord inside. The, the spinal cord? Yes. So the big bundle of nerves that goes from your brain that then goes down your spine and feeds nerves to the rest of your body. What happens if that gets big? Potentially put pressure on the spine. It could potentially damage nerves and mobility. That's not great. No. So this is why it's a major criteria. If you have that, it becomes very hard to say that it's a different condition. Minor criteria, on the other hand, include being short-sighted, having unexplained stretch marks, loose joints, a long thin face, and an arched palate. So the upper part of the mouth again. Okay, and you need how many of those? If you don't have a family history, because I know you're trying to self-diagnose yourself right now, you need two major and one minor. Okay, cool. Definitely don't have it. Feeling good. Yeah, so like if I looked at it, minor criteria, I'm short-sighted, I have no idea where all my stretch marks came from, and I have loose joints. But they're all minor criteria, and therefore that can be anything, including you're just flexible. There are genetic ways of testing now. We have a gene confirmed, so if people are suspicious, it is possible to get genetic screening to see if you have a mutation in the gene that's responsible for Marfan syndrome. Um, and if you have a family history, you might resort to prenatal testing, which would allow you to determine the mutation before the child's born. In these cases, it's more to determine how you would best care for a child afterwards than anything else. And the types of testing here are again chorionic villus sampling, so taking some of the placenta, or amniocentesis, taking some of the amniotic fluid. And you can also do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which would definitely be for the purposes of not giving birth to a child with the mutation. Okay, so this is this is one where it, it is very serious and affects people's lives, but is not going to mean that you have a very, very ill child right away. Yes. Yay for no dying babies in this episode. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't really want to have to put in like a does the baby die caveat in every episode, but yeah, this is one where people can live pretty decent lives. Yay. So what's the outlook for somebody with this condition? Well, I mean, obviously to some extent, uh, life expectancy will vary based on the severity of someone's condition. However, the average life expectancy for someone with Marfan syndrome is only slightly shorter than the general public, with being nearly 70 years old. Okay. So, not bad. But in those 70 years, that's significantly higher risk of a heart condition. Yes, and there's a lot of, obviously, potential pain and morbidity that you can suffer as a result of it. So, it's definitely a more difficult life than average. But it's not much shorter, and you can still have good quality of life with good management of symptoms. 
And on that, the only treatment currently available is symptom management. Oh, I never like when that's the answer. Some of these conditions are very difficult to work with. Um, something like connective tissue, the problem is that that's everywhere. So finding something to actually influence the connective tissue through the entire body can have massive consequences. So it's very complicated to do anything like that. So it's a lot easier to just do treatments such as giving people blood pressure medication so that they don't put as much strain on their blood vessels or give people painkillers and anti-inflammatories so that they don't have as much joint pain. Okay, and I guess maybe physiotherapy to help strengthen other bits? Yes, yeah, physiotherapy is an option as well. So do you want to know what kind of mutation this is? Okay, let me guess. You said family history matters. So is it going to be another recessive one? No. Ooh, dominant. Correct. It is an autosomal dominant mutation. So in this case, that means that there is no difference between the rate of men or women affected. And you can get it from either your mom or your dad. Yeah. And if one of your parents has a condition, you will likely have a 50% chance of getting the condition from them. So this is why family history is really important with Marfan syndrome because it can strongly determine whether or not you have it. Okay, and is this one that you always get from a parent, or is it another one of those where it can just pop up out of nowhere? Yeah, yeah, this one can uh, pop up from what are known as de novo mutations, so new mutations, 25% of the time. Another terrible surprise. Yeah, so one in four cases of Marfan syndrome are completely random. One in four? Yeah. What's the point of doing all that family history then if one in four don't have the family history? Because 75% of the time they do. When you say it that way, it makes more sense. So there is one gene affected in Marfan syndrome. And this gene is called FBN1. Thrilling name, as usual. Of course. And there have been 1,800 different mutations of this gene characterized for Marfan syndrome. Different mutations? Yes. So same gene, different mutations. How can it possibly have that many different mutations? Well, a quarter of the time it occurs randomly. So a mutation in a different location from that new person. Does that mean there's that many different types of the disease? So the disease can sometimes vary based on the mutation, but most of the time, knowing what type of mutation you have in the FBN1 gene gives you no clue as to what your condition will be like. You could have the same mutation as someone else and have a much more severe case. Why? That is currently unknown. What FBN1 does, though, is that it encodes for a protein that is responsible for the amalgamation of another protein called elastin into the elastic fibers of connective tissue. So if you think of your connective tissue, so like for example your blood vessels, as a rubber band, and when you stretch it, it can then relax back into its original position. Ooh, I never thought of my blood vessels as stretchy. Well, they are. So, oh, so that when I need loads of blood somewhere, it can all go through and the blood vessel can widen. 
actually the opposite happens. It contracts oh. a bit like when you put your thumb over a hose so that the blood, so that the water goes through quicker. Huh. Okay. So stretchy blood vessels. Sorry, I got distracted thinking about stretchiness. Yeah. So if you think of it as being like a rubber band, but as a rubber band gets older, it becomes more brittle. The elastic fibers are not working as well. They break. And then and it goes more... ping and it hurts you. Yeah. And it's more likely to tear as time goes on. Now, if you think of your connective tissue as being that rubber band, but you have a mechanism in place to replace those old bits of elastic uh, elastic fiber with new ones so that it can always remain stretchy and flexible. The problem is, when you have this mutation in FBN1, you can't do that. So the band in this regard just gets older without it ever being repaired at any point until eventually it becomes more brittle and more likely to snap or tear. Does that mean the condition gets much worse as you get older? It is progressive. Oh, you just get less and less stretchy. Yeah, and although it's a rare condition, it's not that rare. How often does it appear? Depending on which reports you look at, typically between 1 in 5,000 and 10,000 people. And there seems to be no variation from ethnicity. Okay, that's a lot of non-stretchy people out there. Yeah, that's one way of thinking about it, I guess. Now, <laughs> unsurprisingly... I'm sorry, I don't mean to offend anybody with this. Unsurprisingly, because your connective tissue is everywhere, there are a lot of different illnesses and complications associated with Marfan syndrome. Oh, this is the section I hate. Everything gets even more sad. I know, I know. So the most dangerous ones for patients with Marfan syndrome are the cardiovascular complications. So you can have, for example, an aortic aneurysm. I thought aneurysms were in the brain. So an aneurysm is just a blockage. So in this case, what happens is the pressure of blood leaving the heart can cause the wall of the aorta to bulge out. Uh, like a weak spot in a tire, and then this will typically happen in the aortic root, but that can then cause like a blockage as the blood slows in that area, and then the block builds. So you get a heart attack. Yeah. Not good. You can also have aortic dissection. Don't know is... what that means. So dissect means to cut open. So. What happens in this situation is that the pressure in the aorta eventually causes it to tear open. So so your heart explodes? No. So what this does is it causes severe chest pain, unsurprisingly. And it weakens the blood vessel structure and it can eventually cause it to rupture, which then means that you suffer major internal bleeding. So it can eventually cause your heart to explode? Not really. It's not the heart that uh, breaks at any point. It's the it's the vessel coming out of the heart. Ah, I had already forgotten what aorta meant. The aorta is the biggest vessel that comes out of the heart. Cool. Got it now. Okay. You can also get valve malformations. So your uh, veins have these little valves that open and shut to stop the blood from running back. That's part of the reason why when you uh, when you put a tourniquet on your arm like you do for having your blood taken, your blood vessels start to just pump up. Because you're stopping 
the blood from going forward any further. So then other blood comes into that section, and that makes the blood vessels pump up because they can't go back. Okay. So what happens if those valves are malformed? Then they're not able to close as effectively or maintain the pressure in the blood, so you have a much harder time bringing blood back from the extremities of your body to your heart. Okay. So that's obviously a problem. What what does that mean? It means that you're going to have problems with uh, blood supply around the body. What does low blood supply mean? In my head it just means being cold. No. So in this situation, what that means is that the blood is not returning to the heart. So either from your extremities or from your lungs. Now, if it's from your lungs, it means that you're not getting oxygen supplies to the heart either. Oh, so... So that can cause a heart attack. Okay. Because you could eventually starve the heart. Also, because you have that drop in pressure, because you're not able to kind of have this gate system to stop the blood from flowing backwards, your heart has to work harder to compensate, which means that it is also at higher risk from that, from heart failure. Okay, lots of danger for the heart. You've also got some problems with the eyes. Typically, this is either dislocating your lens or your retina. Nope, nope, nope. Yeah, yeah, those ones are pretty, pretty grim. There's also pregnancy complications. Oh no. The reason being, connective tissue is needed to allow the womb to stretch. If the womb can't stretch properly, it can't house a baby. So, depending on how bad it is, that could cause fertility problems. That's a really sad side effect. And because that because that last bit is so sad, I do want to say that the history bit coming up is very interesting, and there are some potentially exciting things coming into the future. And with that, we'll take a break. time yeah it's history time tell me about it okay so we have some images that may indicate cases of marfan syndrome as far back as ancient egypt i stress may because it's hard enough to diagnose people with marfan syndrome now so who in egypt had it pharaoh akhenaten so there are images of him where he bared uh, similarities to people with Marfan syndrome. So you could see him with uh, an elongated face and long fingers and a long slender build. Now, these images of... Uh, so Akhenaten was a pharaoh who ruled until his death in approximately 1334 BC. That's a really long time ago. And interestingly, there have been images earlier of Akhenaten where he's with his wife Nefertiti, where he doesn't seem to bear these similarities. And the uh, running hypothesis is that it progressively got worse, and therefore the more recent images of him show him bearing more of a resemblance to people with Marfan syndrome as the symptoms became more visible. Ah, that's cool. 
We should post a picture of that on our Twitter. Yes, definitely. Definitely check out the Twitter, at Genetic Drift 1. Best plug ever. <laughs> okay, so how old do you think this condition is? Well, that's anyone's guess. Unfortunately, there was nothing that I could find in the literature that determined the age of any of the mutations involved in Marfan syndrome. And part of this is probably because of that high rate of uh, de novo mutation, 25% of the time people get it at random, it's probably never going to be dated. Because if there's a one in four chance of each step that someone's got it randomly and was the first case, how do you go about dating it? So it's it's a thing that's been around for some time. Yeah, and because there are so many mutations as well, it's possible that some of them happened at different times and started at different times. So you can't even go, this particular mutation, we're going to date it reliably. But it does seem like we probably had this for thousands of years. So why do we... Why does this one stick around? So variability in the severity probably meant that cases are, weren't selected against, but also because there's that high rate of random mutation, people don't necessarily have to have been selected against because they could be, you could have a healthy person give birth to a child who gets that mutation and has Marfan syndrome, and therefore that condition exists. And because a quarter of the cases are random, it's going to be around now due to no selective pressure. So nothing's really stopping it being passed down. Yeah, and nothing's stopping it from happening at random. Lots of surprise, Marfan. Unfortunately, yes. Going to more modern history on Marfan syndrome. So Marfan syndrome is unfortunately another case where a doctor names condition after themselves, which I'm getting a little bit tired of. <sighs> Why couldn't they just call it stretchy tissue disease? Because there are a lot of those. Shh. I should be in charge of naming things. I dread to think what these illnesses would be called if you named them. <laughs> so, anyway. Marfan syndrome is named after Antoine Marfan, who was a French paediatrician who first described the condition in 1896 after he noticed these uh, striking features in a five-year-old girl. That's quite late for it to be described, for something that has such a clear physical appearance. Maybe, but as I said before, it's difficult to diagnose, so for someone to actually characterise it as its own thing is pretty difficult at the best of times. Okay. Now, it would take about another century before the gene linked to the disease would be identified. And that was in 1991, Francesco Ramirez was the uh, researcher who identified that the FBN1 gene was linked to Marfan syndrome. And this was done with his work at Mount Sinai Medical Hospital in New York City. Cool. Good job. Yeah, definitely. And um, obviously that uh, understanding what gene is uh, faulty gives us a good jumping off point for future research. Okay, does that mean things are going to look better as we move forward for treating this? It looks like it, yeah. So, when I was looking into the uh, research that's currently been done, there was a successful case of CRISPR editing of the gene in human cells. So that means it's not 
at any clinical trial stages yet, but we have been able to modify the gene that's responsible for Marfan syndrome to a form that is functionally typical. So this will probably still need some animal testing before human testing, because a lot of people, the rule of clinical trials are, before it reaches a human, you want to put it in a body of some sort. So although human cells are obviously a very great model, because they are human cells and they're the cells of patients, it's not showing you the additional effects it might have on a living creature. So there will probably be animal testing first, which could go on for a little while, and then the clinical testing will start. So although this treatment could, and I emphasize could, be in the future, we're waiting for a couple decades before we can see if that actually happens. Oh, so quite a long way off still. Yeah. So what can we do right now to help people with the disease? I think debunking a few myths is probably a good start because symptom management is the only thing that medical professionals can do. So the next step is to make sure that society takes an approach that is accepting and tolerant to the needs of people with Marfan syndrome. So what are the myths? So I found an online site where they had actually quizzed people with Marfan syndrome about what myths were most irritating to them. And uh, here are four that I found. So number one is you have to have severe deformities to have Marfan syndrome. But it can manifest in lots of different ways. Yeah, and I, th I think this one, like, I'd be quite offended if someone said that to me and I have Marfan syndrome. Like, what what do they define as severe deformities to start off with? And also, calling, like, differences in people's bodies of deformities quite a harsh thing to start off with, like, just a harsh thing anyway. What's the next one? Someone has to be very tall to have Marfan syndrome. Okay, well that is one of the symptoms. It's one of the most common symptoms, but it's not a guarantee. You could potentially have Marfan syndrome and achondroplasia, so you would then have dwarfism and Marfan syndrome. So it's a lot more complicated than that. Although a lot of people are tall and have long slender fingers with Marfan syndrome, not everyone does. And that's part of what makes it very difficult to diagnose. Okay, what else? The third myth, and again this is another one that's just quite insulting, is good-looking people can't get Marfan syndrome. What? Yeah, as if this is something that you catch based on how you look. I think this is some sort of... I think that this myth has come from the idea that people look can look quite different with Marfan syndrome, and therefore if someone looks appealing by our current standards of beauty, they must not have the condition, which is really insulting. Not cool. Yeah, do not center someone's looks and use that to determine what their health is, because that can be very misleading and very inaccurate. I look healthy, I'm not healthy. And finally, the fourth myth is you can only have Marfan syndrome if a parent has Marfan syndrome. But no, we talked about this surprise Marfan syndrome. Yeah, when 25% of people don't have anyone related to them with Marfan syndrome, this is kind of an understandable myth, but quite an annoying one, especially if you are one of these people 
who did acquire this randomly. Okay, so that was some good myth busting. In general, as you, in general, I think it's our usual lesson of don't judge people by their appearance. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, with that, we are reaching the end of the episode. So I thought that there would be just one case of reading that I would recommend, which is a uh, paper by Meester et al., which is Differences in Manifestations of Marfan Syndrome, Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and Lois Diet Syndrome. So this kind of gives you an idea of what a few of the uh, a few of the um, connective tissue disorders are, and also can give you a good description of what the symptoms of Marfan syndrome are. Great, that was a fun episode. I'm glad you liked it. As usual, please get in touch with us with any comments, questions, feedback on Twitter at geneticdrift one, on email at geneticdriftpodcast at gmail dot com or join our Facebook group and get involved in the conversation. And please, if you have any recommendations on conditions that you would like to hear us cover, please share them on the group or on or with us on Twitter. And maybe use the hashtag GeneticDrift. <laughs> Are we going to try and get something trending here? Oh god, it won't trend. It'd just be easier for us to find. No, don't, don't actually do that. Just at us. <laughs> so, with that, today's episode... As with all other episodes, music has been produced by William Kitchener Music, so please check that out. And otherwise, I'd just like to say, hold your judgments because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.